Um, hi, uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be sharing God's Word uh, this morning. And uh, if you were here with us last week, we started a series uh, called The Cheerful Giver. Uh, there were 130-something of you who were not here this last week. Uh, we had a nice, intimate service with uh, the college students and those who weren't able to go to retreat, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and so today, we're just going to be working, in, uh, or just staying in the same, uh, uh, not chapter, but same area of the Bible, uh, same train of thought from the Apostle Paul, and just continuing from where we left off last week. This is only going to be the... This is the last week of the Cheerful Giver series. Next week, we're going to do a Thanksgiving series, and I mentioned this last week, but, uh, and then we're in Advent, which is bonkers to me. Um, we're going to start singing Christmas songs and stuff, right? It's crazy. Um, Costco had Christmas stuff like five weeks ago, so I'm already used to it by now, but uh, we're going to start doing that in church. Um, but yeah, let me actually pray for us one more time very briefly, and then uh, commit the service in this time, and then we'll jump in. God, we just pause very briefly before we continue to submit ourselves before you and before your word, to ask that your word would enlighten us, that it would show us the path with which you call us to walk, that it would show us bits of your heart, show us who you are, how beautiful you are, what a treasure you are, and what a joy it is for us to follow you. So guide our steps now as we humble ourselves before what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a kid, every Sunday morning, I remember my family and I getting into our beautiful 1992 Honda Accord that was actually like this really ugly purpley brown. I don't even know what the color was. And I would sit in the back. I would play with my X-Men action figures And then at some point during the 20-minute ride from my town to my church, my mom would turn around, and she would, from the passenger seat, hand me this beautiful, crisp $1 bill. It looked like it was ironed, you know, just perfectly, like, hot, fresh out of the mint. And if it was a little bit wrinkly, she would, like, you know, give it a little bit of extra, maybe put some spit on it, and make it perfectly straight. And she didn't have to say a word. I knew exactly what to do with it. I would receive the dollar, make sure that it's kept in pristine position or uh, in a condition, and then I would go to service and children's ministry with all the other kids my age. The offering bucket would go around. I would gently place it in the bucket, and then some old person would go up front and hold it really high and pray, and then poof, it was gone, and it would disappear. And that was the routine every single Sunday, the beautiful dollar bill, and then poof, it was gone. And my parents never actually explained to me what the point of offering was. The only thing that I ever learned from my parents, the one time I said, like, why do we do this again, is they said, we need to give God what he gives us, and that was it. And so as a kid, when your parents or an older figure or a teacher doesn't teach you about something that you're, you're curious about, how do you figure it out? Your imagination, right? And so I let my imagination teach me what we did with offering. And so what I believed was at the end of service, the pastor would collect all the offering and would take the plates. And then he would take this hike up a mountain, right? And I, now that I think about it, there are no mountains near Lexington, Massachusetts. But anyways, he probably drove a few hours to the mountains and he would climb up with all the money on his back. And you know, like, um, 
You know those like like the Hobbit or like uh, like sci-fi movies where like the townspeople they have a dragon that live up there in the mountain and you just you don't see the dragon you see the smoke maybe coming out of a dark cave and they quickly bring their like goat offering and like run away and you you hear like it eat and all bones are left over I kind of thought it was like that so the pastor would bring up the money leave it all in one place quickly run behind a rock and like you know like a big light and noise like hallelujah would come out and then it was gone and then the, you just see the rattling like offering plate and you'd be like whoo like all right we paid our our offering and would come down you would drive three hours back to lexington and then we would do it again and that's what happened with offering god like sucked it up into air into space because we gave it to him and so basically, I thought that tithing and offering any of our monetary donations was kind of like, it was essentially paying a bill or a fee, right? It's like, if I, if I don't pay National Grid every month, they're going to shut off my electricity. If I don't pay my $10 Netflix, they're going to shut off my streaming service. If I don't pay God my $1 that has to be really, really crisp, and the pastor doesn't bring it up to God to suck it up like, with a, like a laser beam, then we're in trouble as Christians because we didn't pay our membership, Something's going to happen. As adults, hopefully, we have a better understanding of what happens with the money. If you don't, you should come to one of our town halls. Shameless plug. Um, We have a better understanding. We know what happens with the money. But I think, I think we still have some weird or confusing or maybe a little bit muddy and gray attitudes towards what happens with our money. What happens with our offering, whether it be tied or to an organization. I still think, and I said this a little bit last week, we still seem to categorize our offering, our financial stewardship, our tithing, our giving to organizations or to missionaries a little bit differently. And I still think that a little bit of us, maybe, maybe not you, but at least me even, and some of us have like this feeling of being indebted. Like we owe God. We better pay up. It's, it's the right thing to do, and we're going to be in trouble if we don't. But our generosity, our tithing, our giving, our don- donating has nothing to do with that. Our generosity is a spiritual discipline. Generosity is important and crucial part of our daily walking with Jesus. It's part of a worshipful lifestyle. If we, just as much as singing songs and, and being in a church service isn't paying a fee to God, our generosity is exactly the same. It's worship. It's not payment. And so today we, leave, uh, we continue where we left off last week. We were in 2 Corinthians 8. Um, and this morning we're just going to continue on in 2 Corinthians 9. So if you remember, last week I talked about how in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the Jerusalem church that was suffering because they were undergoing famine, so they got really poor. And so Paul goes around to the churches and says, hey, we have a struggling brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Everybody, like, if you're willing, would you just donate some money? And so the Corinthian church, they volunteer. They say, we'll give, but they end up not. They don't hold their end of the bargain. And so Paul writes this letter to them, and in it he reminds them, remember that donation you said you would give? And he talks about the importance of generosity as Christians. He uses the Macedonian church as a beautiful example of what godly generosity looks like, and then he challenges the Corinthian church. And so while our Bibles have a bunch of chapter numbers and verse numbers uh, for us to organize, uh, you know, Paul wasn't penning like 9-1. And then he's just same train of thought. So let's not get distracted by now that we're in chapter 9. It's the same train of thought. And so we continue off from where we were last week. Um, But now we're in chapter 9, starting from verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, this morning, I'm not going to frame my points around money, around giving, or financial stewardship. Again, our generosity is not some separate category. It is worship. It is discipleship. And so I'm going to frame my three points around discipleship. And the first one being that disciples of Jesus are blessed to be a blessing. Disciples of Jesus, we are blessed in order that we would be a blessing. So let's look at uh, four verses. We're going to jump around a little bit. Verse 6 and 8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Reading 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing And increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So we see in these four four verses, 6, 8, 10, and 11, really, really clearly that what the Apostle Paul wants to teach the Corinthians at the time is that they have been blessed by God in order that they can there be a blessing to others. That God does not bless them nor us so that we can just be happy about it. Okay, God blessed me with a job. Cool. I win. God blessed me with a home and, and, and security and a family and friends. Cool. Like, my life's great. The point isn't that we receive all the good things that God has given us and then just be happy on our own, but in order that we can therefore be a blessing. Let's look at verse 11 again, which is pretty clear. You will be enriched in every way. And it doesn't just stop there so you can be happy. You'll be enriched in every way so you can be comfortable. You'll be enriched in every way so you can be glad. No, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. And Paul uses the illustration twice of, of farming, right? So he talks about sowing seed. And so it, it's, it's pretty clear, right? So he's using this illustration. If you have a lot of land and you sow a lot of seed, then a lot of crops are going to come out. You will have a rich harvest. So similarly, Paul is saying God is going to supply everything you need, and if he does it in abundance, if you get lots and lots of seed, it's so that you can grow much and succeed and give it away. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. God will supply everything that you need in order that you will never lack. You won't ever have too little to give. 
But don't we always feel, or maybe not always, very often feel that way? I have too little to give. God, you didn't bless me enough. You didn't give me enough for me to be generous. Hurry up and bless me, because then I can go be a blessing to others. But Paul makes it clear that Jesus has given everything that we need to be generous. But something gets in the way. Something gets in the way for us overflowing in the abundance of the harvest to give. I want to talk about the city of Corinth itself um, and, and to who Paul was talking to. So Corinth uh, is very, was a very big deal. It was a Roman colony, a really special city. It was a unique geographical location. It was a hustle, bustle type of city like, like New York or one of the major American cities. And, and this is a map of, of, um, of Corinth. So you see it over here, and this is a dot that represents it. Um, so this is Greece, just to get our, our bearings, and, and Turkey over here. And so you'll notice that Corinth, this little, I mean, some of you are far away, but this tiny sliver of land and where two bodies of water connect. So because of that lo- unique location, it was both a highway by foot and also by sea, meaning it was high traffic. There were always people in and out in order to get from one place to another or in order to sail from one place to another. It was a critical place. So Corinth, by nature of its location, became a very critical place to set up shop, to trade. And so historians say that the reason why Corinth got really um, wealthy was the exchange of merchandise because a lot of traders came there, both by foot and by sea. It was a huge tourist attraction. They actually had, uh, apart from the Olympic Games, they had one of the major sports um, games of the, of, the, of the age called the Isthmian Games. It was a center for economic development, a banking and finance hub. And they also had lots of other cool things like uh, shopping areas and monuments, schools, theaters, gymnasiums, art galleries even. And because there were so many people, they had lots of great infrastructure. So their water systems and roads, it had to meet the demand of the people, so they increased that. And so one commentator says that Corinth in Paul's time, quote, was quite cosmopolitan in character. So it was a really, really great place to live. If you were in Greece, you wanted to live in Corinth, but there was a really, really, really big problem. The, wealth, uh, the gap between the wealthy and the poor got really big, and it continued to divide. And the wealth of the city and the, its, the, its health, its economic thriving, didn't solve the problem. So these are the people that Paul are t- is talking to. But as I read all these characteristics about Corinth, it gave me like this eerie feeling. That sounds a lot like Boston. Right? We're in a very critical coastal place. There's a reason why the coasts of the, of, of the United States are where a lot of our major cities are found. We have a hustle bustle of industry, growing companies in the tech industry, pharmacy industry, GE just showed up, Amazon is actually considering Boston to have their second uh, um, uh, headquarters here. We were in the final running to host the Olympics here. Property value, can we talk property value for five seconds? It's like impossible to find affordable rent. We're only a city of 600,000. You know New York City is 6.5 million? So New York is much bigger than Boston, yet we're just below New York in terms of cost of living. We have a great tourism in our city. We're a hub for, I mean, most of you are here because of this, hub for education, world-renowned research universities and college. Harvard is here, Right? Just like Corinth, we have no shortage of shopping areas, monuments, schools, theaters, gymnasiums, 
We have really good sports teams for name exams. Um, and, and Corinth, we have a huge, I mean, just like Corinth, to get to my point, a big gap between the wealthy and the poor. Last year, a major study from the Brookings Institute found that of all American cities, Boston is number one in the gap between wealthy and poor. And one of the things they said, walk down the street or drive. Let's use, they didn't use Mass Ave. I'm going to use Mass Ave as an example. If we were to walk down Mass Ave, I want you to picture it, how quickly it changes, right? The cars, the, the, the people, what they're wearing in that area. And then you just start getting away from Back Bay and you get closer to BMC and then you go a little bit further into Southie. You didn't walk very long, did you? This is a map of Corinth. Here's a map of Boston that the Brookings Institute put out. Every blue dot that you see there represents two households, so not one house, two, with an annual income greater than $200,000 per year. And I thought this was a typo, but I double-checked. Every yellow dot, so hear me clearly, every yellow dot represents two households with an annual income less than $25,000. Two households, combined annual income less, I'm not, it's $25,000. And let's look at this. So some of you are only crammed on your campuses, so you have no idea what we're looking at. So... Boston, right? Cambridge, (laughs) airport, you fly out of here, right? Look, Castle Island, yay, we go to the beach there. Okay, so let's look at what, do you know what this is? You definitely know what this is. Back Bay, we are here right now, North End, Beacon Hill, right? Cambridge, Somerville, y'all know what this big thing is? Brookline, see how that touches? Brighton, Alston, and Brookline, and BU, y'all are right here, and then Dorchester, half of JP, Roxbury, West Roxbury, Newton, Waltham, Belmont is up here, Watertown. Look at the divide. Look how clear the colors are. And soon, Somerville up here is going to look all blue. And this is start going to getting this is going to start to be blue. And then blue and blue and blue, eventually. We have a huge, huge wealth divide in Boston, just like Corinth. So what gets in the way of the church, of the people of God, in the midst of a city like this, being generous? I think, not maybe for everyone, but for a lot of us, I think it's because we don't necessarily feel like we're the blessed ones. We don't always identify as being privileged We often say, oh, I'm underprivileged or I'm in debt. We love saying that. I'm in so much debt. I'm only working entry-level job. I'm a student. I'm a grad student. We identify ourselves from a place of lacking as opposed to a place of being greatly blessed. And so I hear all the time that, like, oh, I don't have much to give or to offer. And you know what? For a lot of you, that's true. Students and grad students, um, when you say that, it's true. You don't have much to give. But I still think it's the wrong attitude in that let's add a comma to the end of that sentence instead of a period and say, but, say, I don't have much to give, comma, but I have something to give. I think as students, even I was just like you when I was in college, we need to shed that attitude. And then those of us who are working entry level, or some of us are are wealthy and we still feel that. We need to shed this attitude. I don't know how much we have to give, or maybe we have very little, but we have something. 
We've been blessed. I hope in this Thanksgiving season, I, I mean, this isn't a Thanksgiving sermon, but what I really hope for all of us is for us to reflect and even maybe journal. I don't even journal, but maybe all of us should journal and write down the ways that God has truly blessed us. And my hope is that, and I because I know that it's true, that we could, before we should run out of things to write, our hands should get too tired to write. We should run out of paper before we run out of things to write of the ways that the Lord has loved you. We are so blessed. Our jobs, our education, the fact that our heat comes on when the winter shows up, the technology of our cell phones in our pockets and the computers, internet, our means of travel. Some of you drove here. Some of you took the tea. Some of you took an Uber. Those are blessings. Running water. We can go to the bathroom right now and turn a faucet and it's clean. You can drink it. We don't even just have food every day, but all of us, we go to great restaurants. We can enjoy restaurant week and go to fancy ones and every once in a while treat ourselves to a $70 steak if we wanted to. We have been so blessed, friends. We are a blessed people. We are not underprivileged. We are not lacking. God gives us everything we need to bless those who are in need. So can we collectively, with one voice today, thank God, say, Lord, you have blessed us, not a little, but abundantly. And can we ask God to help us shed any attitudes of, I have so little, but help us to see our affluence, our our abundance, our blessing. Because disciples of Jesus are blessed so that we can be a blessing to the world. Point number two, disciples of Jesus are cheerful givers. In verse 7, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Surprise, I'm not creative. This is where I got the title name of the sermon series. I stole it from Paul. That's the best plagiarism. It's from the Bible. That's the only where, where it's allowed. Uh, as you can see in this verse, it's, you know, it's, it's clear. It doesn't need, you don't need a theological degree to understand it. God isn't looking for reluctant or guilty or compulsory giving. He's looking for it to be cheerful. Paul actually, in the passage right before ours in verse 5, we started at verse 6, says a similar thing at the end of it. He talks about the donation. Remember the donation they were going to give to Jerusalem? And he says, have it ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Exaction, I didn't know what that meant either. I've never used that in my life. I looked it up on dictionary.com. It's money demanded for payment of service. So again, same train of thought. God doesn't want you to feel guilty or compulsory or in this case, an exaction demanded for your payment. He says it should be cheerful. And why does God want us to be cheerful? Because he himself is a cheerful giver. He gives to us not because he's like, oh, I guess I'm God. I got to. <laughs> Can you imagine him in heaven being like, ah, oh, okay, they're the creation I created. No, it's because he loves us. It's because he loves his creation that he gives graciously, love, out of love, voluntarily, generously. And so he wants us to be the same way. Uh, when Unji and I, when my wife and I were dating, she gave me a an example of cheerful giving that I will never, ever forget. So I just graduated college in May, and I was about to start seminary in August. So only a few months later, I was in between college, and in July is my birthday at the end of July. And so we 
celebrated my birthday together, and we were hanging out, and she's like, oh, I have a gift for you, I promise, but I'm not going to give it to you until the end of the day before I go home. And so she pulls it out, we, we, we went out to a good meal, and we were playing, and then she gives me this box, I'm like, oh, like, thank you, and I start to rip it, and inside it's like a computer box, so I'm like, okay, like, what's inside, and I'm going you know, to shake it a little bit. And so I'm like trying to, you know, find the, like, the divot, and I'm like, this is sealed, it's like, why did you have to seal this so tightly, right? Like, it's like professional almost. And, and I look up, and she's just kind of like, like looking at me like, uh, hello, like, like, you dummy? And I'm like, oh, the gift was a computer, right? So I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm in temporarily stunned. She got me a laptop, a brand new laptop for my birthday. So that summer, she was actually working in Alston at one of the Korean restaurants over there that many of y'all know. And Basically, she spent the whole summer working at a restaurant, waiting tables, not making much money from crappy tips um, to pay her rent, to obviously pay for her food and living, and then to save money for when she went back to college for the next semester. But instead of saving up a lot of money for going back next semester, she, sacrif- she barely had anything left after paying rent and her food and her normal expenses and kept saving so that I would have a laptop to use in seminary. Because my laptop was a silver Dell Inspiron that was a piece of crap. You, you'll feel me? Who had the Dell Inspiron? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, y'all know. Um, I think it was a piece of crap. And I was stressed about it. I was like, oh, how am I going like, to study and whatever. And she just wanted me to learn and be at seminary and not have to worry about being able to take notes and following on with online lectures and all the benefits of a computer that a student needs. And so she ended up going to school with very little in her pocket because she wanted me to have a good computer, a brand new one as I started my, started my education. And some of you are like, yeah, that, of course you're going to remember that gift. It's a computer. But honestly, it's not about that. It was about how much loving sacrifice went into the gift. And imagine if the gift was like, oh, I'm a girlfriend. I have to do this. Like, okay, he needs a computer. But it wasn't. I just remember the joy that she experienced that seemed like it was greater than mine at my shock and my stupidity and like, oh my gosh, you got me a computer. I thought you were going to give me like a $20 gift card to J. Crew. you know? It's a computer. It's like $1,000. And in that small example, I saw what cheerful giving looks like. And I think we've all experienced that in little ways here and there. And even in our small, like, silly human examples, isn't it pretty clear why God wants cheerful giving? Imagine if all the gifts that you ever received were reluctant. Imagine if every time your parents, when you were a little kid, took you to Six Flags or to Disney World or bought you a birthday gift or that thing that you've been saving up for and you really wanted that new video game. Or even now in adulthood, Every time your significant other, your spouse, your friends, I know that college students, you guys do so well in having like 70 people cram into a small dorm room and pie them in the face and like, yeah, happy birthday. Like imagine if everyone showed up and like, happy birthday, right? Like we know as humans what it feels like to receive from joy versus receiving from compulsion or guilt. And so surely we can understand why God wants us to give worshipfully because it's joyful, Disciples of Jesus are cheerful givers. Disciples of Jesus are people who are growing in love. And if our discipleship of love is growing, then remember, this isn't a separate category. Discipleship involves generosity. Then this area of stewardship and generosity will be filled with more love and joy. 
because we're called to be cheerful givers. And point three, disciples of Jesus are generous to give God glory. I love Paul because he is the best pastor of all time. He's so good in always bringing us back. And I hope that you guys even challenge your earthly pastors to model that, me, challenge me in that. He says, the disciples of Jesus, the reason why we do this is to bring God glory. It's not so that people will like us. It's not so that we can be like, oh, I checked off my li- on the list of I am moral. I am a good person. It's not so that we can receive praise. The purpose and the greatest fruit of our generosity is to bring glory to God. Look at verses 11 and on. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, comma, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Be generous to praise him, to lead to that praise. For the ministry of service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. He continues, by their approval of the service, because of what you're doing, because you're being generous, because you're following the Lord's will for you, what are the people going to do? They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. Let's look at this clearly. I just want to really nail this in. Through will produce thanksgiving to God, overflowing in thanksgiving to God. They will glorify God because of submission. The reason why we do our discipleship and subtext, why we as disciples are generous, is to bring glory to God. And I love how Paul makes this so clear. We can't get away from it in this text. The point of our discipleship is God's glory, meaning the point of our generosity and our giving is for God's glory. It's so that it would produce thanksgiving. It's so that more lips would praise Jesus. It's so that people would see the generosity that comes from your heart and following him and that God would receive the glory and praise. Friends, if our purpose is to worship, if our purpose is to follow him, if you consider yourself a disciple, We've got to normalize our generosity. This has to be a thread of your DNA, of your fabric. It can't be a side holiday thing. It can't be a once in a while thing. It can't be just when they preach about it, a church thing. It's got to be a part of who we are. Just as you pray to glorify God, just as you show up on Sundays, just as you sing songs of worship, just as you think about how you can evangelize to your coworkers or dorm room uh, or dorm mates, just as you think, oh, I want to resist different areas of temptation and live a life of holiness, so we must be generous. So in summary, Disciples of Jesus are blessed to be a blessing. God has given each and every one of us so much, not so we can just benefit ourselves, but so that we can be a blessing to others. Disciples of Jesus are cheerful givers. God loves a cheerful giver because he himself is a cheerful giver. Because it's out of love that we ought to be following him in the way that he loves us. Disciples of Jesus are generous to give God glory. The purpose is not to increase our morality, our goodness, or to make people say thank you and see us as good people. We don't want any of the attention. We want to be generous so that God would be praised. So what do we do? Last week, if you remember, uh, my challenge or my application was first to us to self-examine. And by self-examine, what I meant was let's look at our spending Let's look at our generosity. Let's look at our stewardship. 
And let's see, ask yourself, does that reflect my love? Does it reflect what I care about most in this world and life? Does it reflect that I am a follower of Jesus and I'm passionately pursuing him? And that I encourage you, after you do some self-examination, to plan. To make a plan that is from your self-examination. So if in these areas, maybe it doesn't reflect your love, then how can something that you love, like if you hate uh, world hunger, and, or, or yeah, if you hate world hunger and you would love to see hungry mouths being fed, then make a plan so that you can be a part of that work and more hungry people being fed. And today, we just add, give. So our application is self-examine, plan, and then we got to start exercising our discipleship. we got to start executing. We have to do something about it. And in order to make this as practical and as simple as simple and practical can be, all I'm going to ask is for everyone to think of 2%. That means if you're not giving at all, if you don't donate to charity, if you don't donate to clean water, if you don't donate to like malaria, if you don't uh, uh, solving the issue of malaria, if you don't donate to cancer research, if you don't give offering to the church, if you don't donate to missionaries, if you don't do any of that, just start at 2% of what you have. Don't jump all the way to 5, 10, 15, 20, 25%. You probably, it's going to be really hard to get there. You might do it once and you're like, oh, I regret this decision. Start at 2. And if you already do those great things, it's easy for us to just get complacent, like, ooh, I'm so good at generosity. Like, I did that when I was three years ago. I settled that with God. No, we can keep growing in it. God's challenging us to continue to grow because he doesn't stop blessing us, right? Once we get to the place where we're generous, he doesn't say, okay, now you're good, so I'll cease blessing, and you will remain neutral. No, he continues to love you, and he gives you more often. And so we can continue to give more. Those of us who are already doing really well in this area, so just 2%. All of us, 2%. If you believe in the mission and the vision of this church, start giving 2% to this church so that we can do more habitat trips, so we can send more missionaries, so that we can have these services and be able to function here and be able to pay our rent to the school so we can worship together. So that we can have our retreats and all the things that we do in the life of this ministry, they would not happen if people stopped giving. We would close our doors and we would see you next time. If you believe in a missionary, again, I said this last week, if you have a friend who's gone on missions, we have a brother, David Kim, who just left on Thursday. He's not here with us anymore. He's in New Jersey at home and eventually going to go to Japan for, for a year and committing his heart to serving the church in Japan. We have plenty of friends. We have people that we support here. Give to them. What's a cause that you would love to see solved? Give 2%. And those of you who squirm every time somebody tells you to give, I want to actually do the math, okay? This is what it looks like. I just chose arbitrary salaries. This is what it looks like per day for you for 2%. If you think it's, oh, that's so heavy, like that's so difficult. Oh, you're making me feel so uncomfortable. If you made $25,000 per year, $1.36 per day is what it looks like for you to give 2%. That's like a bottle of water. That's like if you went over to 7-Eleven and bought a bag of chips and a soda. $1.36. If you make $50,000 per year, 2% is only $2.74 per day. It's a gallon of gas if you drive. If you do the whole bus and then tea transfer, it's just one little way to work. So easy, right? 
If you make 75 grand per year, it's $4.11 per day. Some of our large espresso drinks that we get at like, what, what's that over there? Trident, what is it called? Nero, thank you, uh, is five bucks, right? Or Trident, that's also a cafe, I know, okay. Um, Starbucks even, like it's, it's like getting a coffee. Some of us are those routine regulars. They know your name, they know your order. It's probably $4 or five. It's so simple. So for us to add 2% is really simple. And I know you college students are saying, well, I make like $10 per hour for six hours per week, like working at the library. I can't do that. Actually, I want you to ask any person who's financially stable at this church. It is so much easier to give when you have little than when you have a lot. I know it sounds backwards. I know it sounds backwards. Trust me. When people said that to me when I was your age, I was like, you dumb, yo. But no, they were smart. I should have listened to that guy because when you have little, it's so much easier to give. And I don't know what you make, but when I was in college, I worked at our gyms. I would like spot guys who are benching too much that they shouldn't have and like would wipe up their sweat afterwards. I got $9.25 per hour. And giving that, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't. But I only work 12 hours a week and that, if per day, I don't know what the math is. What is it, like a dime? Literally, right? Like 15, 20, maybe a quarter? College students, you can give a quarter a day, right? It's like a piece of bazooka bubble gum. <laughs> Y'all even know what that is? It's like a rock. It's like break your tooth bubble gum. I don't know why I thought that. I'm just being random. Anyways, you can give. It's like just a dime per day. All of us can do 2%. And the point isn't to stay there, but the point is for there to be an easy on-ramp where our actions lead us a little bit And then in our discipleship, our hearts start to follow and match us there. And we start to experience that this is not by compulsion, but this is my joy. As you start to see that your donation matters, no matter how small it is. As you start to feel, hey, I gave five bucks to charity water. And some other guy gave $10,000 to charity water and they built a well. But one of those little bricks was still because of your hand. And it matters. It matters. Self-examine, plan. We can't just stay at the planning part. We gotta start giving so that it becomes normal, so that it becomes routine, so that it becomes part of our discipleship. I'm gonna close in an untraditional way. And what I really wrestled with, I said, don't do it. Don't do it. And then I highlighted it on my computer and I was gonna hit delete. And then I didn't. And I think that a lot of pastors might like judge me and be like, ooh, bad mistake, bro. Like, you're young. You don't know. But I could not get away from it. So I'm going to say this. If right now you feel like I'm making you feel guilty or reluctant or pushing you by compulsion, I'm going to ask you to do nothing. We don't want you to give anything. We don't want you to give to the church. Don't give to the charity. Don't give to the missionaries. Now, the reason why... I say that's potentially dangerous and dumb is because we don't want to create cultures in which our faith is only lived out when we feel like it. There's a lot of parts in the Bible where it doesn't matter if you're guilty, do it. It doesn't matter if you feel bad or if your heart isn't there, go. God's glory demands our worship. But the reason why I couldn't get away from it is that as your pastor, if I'm going to be faithful to this text, if I'm going to be faithful to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and what Apostle Paul was saying to this specific church, then I'm going to give you a separate uh, application in saying self-examine, plan, 
And then pray. Pray for your heart to get to a place of joy. Pray for your place for you to become a cheerful giver. Don't give out of guilt. Don't give out of compulsion. Don't give out of reluctance. Not out of this passage at the very least. But for the rest of us, if you do feel a deep love, if you've come to realize that God has blessed you, and if that makes you cheerful, then I want to ask you to be abundant. If you feel so blessed right now and your heart is overflowing, if you are cheerful to the point and realization of how much Jesus loves you, then I'd say even screw my application. Say, screw 2%, I want to give 5 Do what your heart leads you to do. But let's do it joyfully. Let's do it cheerfully in this Thanksgiving season. And if you're not there yet, if you're like, oh, this dude's just like getting on my case and making me feel guilty, then just pray. Don't do it yet. I hope you do it tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. I hope you do it at some point. And there are other places in the Bible that say give no matter what. And there are. And I'll say that next time. <laughs> but this time, I want to ask you, don't give if you feel guilty. Just pray. We give, church, because Jesus gave to us. We give not because the world says that generous people are the good ones. We give because we want to be models of our Lord and Jesus Christ, who, which we read last week. For you know, you and I know, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty would become rich. This is why we give. Celebrities, they have gazillions of dollars and they'll give because, oh, it looks good in front of the public eye or public relations says you should. But we give because of this. We give because the grace of the Lord Jesus is rich to us, that he took our place, that he saw our horrible state and where we were distant from God and completely separated. And he decided by his own joy in following the Father's will that he would swap places with us. So that all those words in the Bible that talk about your reward, we're a little bit sensitive about that because of the prosperity gospel, and we absolutely condemn the prosperity gospel, that God's going to give you a car. That's not true, but what is true is what the word actually means, and that you will have reward in heaven. And it's not because of what you did. In fact, everything that we do just makes us get more further away from receiving the reward or, or being uh, deserving of being a recipient of it. But because of this, because Jesus switched places with you, we have reward. And can't we, like our Heavenly Father, knowing that we have been blessed, see somebody who's maybe in a rougher state than us and say, I want you to feel the blessing that I, I feel. Can't we as Christians make a difference in the suffering world, in the mission of God, in the planting of churches, in there being no such thing as children being molested or abused? Can't we be a part of that? And can't we be a part of it regularly, routinely, because it's a part of our discipleship? And above all of that, joyfully, because Jesus has loved us so? We can. And I think that we will. And I can't wait for that day. And we won't see it in fullness until Jesus comes again. but we will see it. When he comes back, he's going to make everything right. Will there be no suffering anymore? But until then, we faithfully look to him, submit ourselves to his word, 
and humbly ask that he would use us in a part of doing that now, little by little. So who do you love? Who do you serve? Let's make our generosity reflect that we are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. That we want our lives to be modeled right after his, just like him. And for our generosity to be a cheerful, loving expression that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Would you just bow in prayer with me? Gracious God, we thank you that your hand is at work in this world. We thank you that you care for the lost, for the broken. You care for the sick, for the prisoner. You care for those who are lonely. You care for those who are abandoned. You care for those who are lacking and hungry and thirsty. You care. And we confess, I confess, that a lot of times we read your Bible, your word, and there's so many pages, so many of them, that say that Christians ought to love the needy, support them. Christians ought to be generous with their money. And there's so many pages of it. And oftentimes it, oh, it makes us cringe a little bit. But we want to say as Cornerstone today, we are so thankful that you put that many commands in your word for us to be generous. We are so thankful that you are not a God who commands his people to love themselves more. Rather, you are a God who says, if you're going to be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. We thank you so much that you demand of your church to be lovers of those who are suffering. We thank you that you are a God who says, I'm going to bless you. I want you to receive it, and then I want you to give it away too. We do not want to feel guilty or reluctant from your commands, but we want to be so thankful that you are a God who commands us to feel this way and to live this way. And we want to be a part of that work. Many of us don't have much to give. We're in thousands of dollars in debt. Many of us don't have much to give because we're in debt and paying that off and we're making very little and Boston rent is too expensive. It's true. Many of us don't have that much. But all of us have something. All of us have been blessed by you and we, even in our state, regardless of where we are, want to be a blessing to others. We want to see your church mission being more fulfilled here at Cornerstone. We want to see more churches being planted around this world. We want to see so many good things. Your work, God, being done because your church is generous. Father, for those of us who feel guilty, for those of us who feel like, oh, like I'm not there yet, we pray for your Holy Spirit's ministry on their hearts. We pray for freedom to not give if they feel that way. And we pray for cheerfulness to replace the guilt. And we pray that all of us as one body united under the blood of Jesus would give a cheerful offering unto you. Lord, in this Thanksgiving season, let us remember, recognize, and think of all the ways you have good to us. Would we joyfully dwell in your presence, knowing that we are loved by you, 
But let us not stop there. Let us go and be loving like Jesus to others. Thank you for the series we were able to dive into. And if I may, Father, I pray boldly that much change, much fruit, much transformation, and much action would come out of it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team comes forward to prepare and